Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell on High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and the producer of our dope theme music. It is exactly eight weeks until the 2022 midterm elections, which, for the record, mark your calendars, take place on November 8th, November 8th, very late by conventional standards. And everyone inside and outside the political game is buckling up for what is shaping up to be a wild, wacky, crazy, hazy, bumpy, lumpy, head-spinning, neck-snapping, hell-and-high-watery ride with stakes for the Congress, the White House, Republicans, Democrats, the country, the world, you, me, your nutty Uncle Dexter, his batty wife, Delfina, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and American democracy itself that couldn't get any stratospherically higher if they were Snoop Dogg on, well, pretty much any old weeknight. To help us get our heads around what's about to unfold over the next two months on the campaign trail from coast to coast, from the rubiest red to the midnightiest blue to the Prince circa 1984-iest purple states on the map, we have with us on the podcast this week two of the smartest, savviest, most data-drenched, and simply wisest people in the business when it comes to all matters electoral. The first is Amy Walter, who's been in this business for 25 years now, starting out as a specialist on the House of Representatives for the Cook Political Report way back in 1997, then becoming the editor-in-chief at The Hotline, and then the political director at ABC News before returning to the Cook Political Report, where she now reigns and presides supreme as a publisher and editor-in-chief, as well as the boss of our second guest, Dave Wasserman, who currently occupies the post that Amy held when she started at their August and Super Wired Insiders publication, that is, senior editor focused on the House, but who has also achieved special notoriety as both an election forecaster starting in 2016 when he published a prescient analysis in September of that year titled How Trump Could Win the White House While Losing the Popular Vote in 538. And he's also achieved special notoriety as an election night race caller with his Twitter feed being obsessively refreshed by every political operative, strategist, campaign staffer, and journalist, including me, all of them waiting, waiting, waiting for Wasserman, often ahead of the network news divisions to reach conclusions about the outcomes of races across the country, and then tapping out what has become his trademark declaration phrase, quote, I've seen enough. Three little magic words that translate roughly into, stick a fork in this race, baby, it's done. Over the course of a little more than an hour, I covered the political waterfront with Dave and Amy, the macro outlook for both parties in the Senate, House, and gubernatorial races, exactly how much and why the political environment has shifted dramatically over the summer, largely to the benefit of Democrats, the possibility that despite inflation being still too high, even after recent drops in gas prices, and Joe Biden's approval ratings being still too low, even after recent upticks and some significant legislative achievements, Team Blue stands a fighting chance, a 25% chance to be precise, Dave Wasserman reckons, of retaining control of the House and increasing their majority in the Senate. How the Donald Trump factor, everything from the January 6th committee hearings back in the summer to the recent search and seizure and potential indictment of Donald Trump on for violating the Espionage Act, how all of that, the Trump factor writ large, may play out this fall, and maybe most importantly, the political fallout from the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade, which both Amy and Dave believe to be potentially game-changing. In fact, let's take a listen to a little bit 
of what they had to say on that topic. First, here's Amy talking about how she thought Republicans would respond, first to the prospect and then the reality of SCOTUS striking down Roe in June. What I expected, actually, once the Dobbs decision was leaked and then once it finally became a reality, was you were going to see Republican legislators or Republican candidates, especially in many of these swing states, go into the place where most voters are, which is somewhere between the 40-yard lines, to say, you know what, I'm pro-life, but I also believe as you know, most Americans do that there should be an exception. I believe there should be restrictions. I like the idea of having this restriction, but let's not go too far on over here. The big question going forward for some of these Republicans is how do they keep the focus on the issue they want, which is Biden plus economy, without seemingly ignoring this big elephant in the room, which is abortion? Just thinking you're going to run all on economy and not address an issue that is clearly very important to a significant segment of voters, I don't think is completely sustainable. And now here's Dave assessing the degree to which the Dobbs decision energized voters in the pro-choice camp, particularly female voters, and the early signs that the effect this fall could be seismic. The percentage of new registrants who are women high democratic propensity is pretty impressive since Dobbs. I think it is part of the enthusiasm gap that we're seeing close more broadly. You know, the NBC poll in April, I believe, had 66% of Republicans as extremely enthusiastic, a nine or 10 out of 10 about voting in the fall compared to 48% of Democrats. The most recent late August poll was 68% for Republicans to 66% for Democrats. So I, I think that's reflected. And In upstate New York, the special election that we recently saw between Pat Ryan, the Democrat, and Mark Molinaro, the Republican, Amy has pointed this out a bunch, the Republican was actually a pretty good candidate in a bellwether district. He's the county executive of a blue-leaning county, Dutchess County, and he wanted to fight the race on Republican turf, which he saw as inflation and Biden, and he didn't mention abortion. This is a wake-up call for Republicans. There is a lot more where that came from in our conversation, including individual specific assessments of many of the key races that everyone, including me, including you, will be watching obsessively in the weeks ahead, from John Fetterman versus Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania, to Herschel Walker versus Raphael Warnock and Brian Kemp versus Stacey Abrams in Georgia, Tim Ryan versus J.D. Bance in Ohio, Ron Johnson versus Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin, and of course, Beto O'Rourke versus Greg Abbott in Texas, and more more, more, more. So I invite you now to kick off your shoes, crack open a cold one, pull out your copy. I know you got one of the Almanac of American Politics and settle in for a fascinating and enlightening deep dive with Amy Walter and Dave Wasserman into the dark and savage heart of midterm madness, a place that holds in store this fall, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, and of course, no small quantities of hell and high water. Republican. Not a single one, House or Senate, voted for that legislation. We also passed once-in-a-generation investment in our nation's roads, highways, bridges, railroads, ports, airports, water systems, high-speed internet. We got a little help from Republicans, but not a lot, but enough to get it passed. But the truth is, 
There are a lot more Republicans taking credit for that bill than we actually voted for it. I see them out there, and now we're going to build this new bridge here. We're all for it. And by the way, this new road, and we're going to have an internet that's going to be all the way. I love them, man. They ain't got no shame. They don't have any shame. <laughs> so that's Joe Biden out on the campaign trail. And you know, we have Amy Walter and Dave Wasserman here, two of the smartest people about American politics that I know. How much does it cost to subscribe to the Cook Political Report? I subscribe. I don't even know how much it is. How much is it? It's a bargain. Yeah, I know. <laughs> at at $350, it is a bargain. Now, you can go monthly I was gonna for $35. Say, you can have a – we have a new Flash Pass, so you can ooh, just subscribe for the last three months. We've got all kind of options for you. Log well, on, say, cookpolitical.com. I will say that I'm an annual subscriber. I just don't happen Thank to you. know because, because I consider the thing invaluable, and I would pay any price for it. So it's a, be a bargain <laughs> at like five times the price. Well, um, now that you put it that way, John – uh, your bill has gone up. <laughs> the billing department next week could be like, I'm sorry, we're charging you $4,000. Yeah, he doesn't check his bills, Dave. Let's yeah. put it up there. Yeah, it's $15,000. For the kids out there, there once was an, imp uh, an impressionist named Rich Little. And uh, you can Google that if you're below the age of like 60. Um, and when Joe Biden goes into Rich Little mode and starts doing his Republican imitation, um, that's how you know, Amy Walter, that he thinks the political wind is at his back. It doesn't yeah, he seem he feels, happier right now than he has in a long time? That is absolutely true. What's interesting, though, as he's talking up his list of accomplishments, is the fact that that bill in particular, the infrastructure bill, yeah. um, is getting talked about a little bit on the campaign trail by Democrats. But the other one that he likes to talk about, too, is the COVID relief bill, right. which at the beginning of the 2020 to cycle, it was an issue where Democrats thought they found something they could use against Republicans, right? It was a popular program. It put money in the pockets of individuals and small businesses. Well, then along came inflation. And now the issues about spending are being put back onto Democrats with Republicans attacking Democrats for spending too much money too quickly and on projects that were sort of frivolous. This debate about <laughs> who's helping and who's saving the economy, you know, uh, Republicans are coming into this in much better shape than they were, say, a year ago, especially when you look at the numbers out there of, of Americans who believe that Biden's not doing a particularly good job on the economy and that voters still trust Republicans a lot more on issues like inflation or you know, getting things back on track with the economy. And yeah, Dave Wasserman, I look at like the headlines before I read the articles, you know, Amy writes all the time and you write all the time and Charlie and others. And, you know, I see a lot of things that kind of jibe with the conventional wisdom. You know, the red wave is looking smaller and then there's a red wave is going to be more like a trickle. And would you say that you broadly agree? I think you do on the basis of what I've read that Democrats have a right to be pretty if not optimistic or confident exactly, although some of them are, that they're in a way better position than they were, broadly speaking, nationally, three months ago, two months ago, 
and certainly in a better position than most political experts thought they have any right to be in, given historical trends and things like some of the things Amy's saying, Joe Biden's unpopularity, inflation, which is going down a little bit now, but it's still a huge problem. It has been for two years. I guess my question is whether you think Democrats are getting carried away with their sense of enthusiasm and confidence and this notion that the, the tides have turned in their favor. Yes, to both, John. I think clearly this is a better political environment for Democrats than three months ago, certainly than last November when Republicans flipped a Biden plus 10 state and won the governorship in Virginia by two points and came within three in New Jersey. But Democrats are also getting a bit carried away with the idea of how many Senate and House seats they could win this fall. So both things can be true. If I had to rank order the reasons why things have gotten better for Democrats. Obviously, Dobbs is far and away the number one driver uh, that's closed the enthusiasm gap between the parties. But then inflation is still top uh, of mind for voters, the number one issue, but gas prices being down 23% from their June peak has taken a bite out of Republicans' bite inflation message. Third, I think the shift in focus away from Biden and onto Trump the last couple months has energized Democrats, but also depressed Republicans' anger at Biden because he hasn't been in the news as much. And we've also seen Republican primaries pulling their fields far to the right. Many of these primaries have lasted until August, and so it's given them a narrow window to be able to turn around and pivot to a general election message. And then finally, you know, Democrats' legislative breakthroughs, which are quite impressive in an election year, have renewed some Democrats' faith in the president's ability to get things done, which I think explains why he's bounced back from 38 to 43 in his average approval at 538. That said, the hot streak of special election results for Democrats where they've outperformed Biden's percentage of the vote in districts in Nebraska and Minnesota and New York State and obviously Alaska, where Sarah Palin lost a Trump plus 10 state, mostly because she's very, very unpopular in that state. Right. It's overstated the size of the shift. You know, the, kind of the hidden metric that a lot of us nerds pay attention to is the Washington state primary, which is an all party primary where every voter sent a ballot in the mail. And in that, Republicans did a hair better than they did in 2020. And so I, I think it suggests that this is a mildly better year for Republicans than 2020 was, but not by that much. Right. And look, I think maybe, Amy, maybe part of the issue here is that Republicans, they had so much bravado for a period of time about this absolute certainty of a red wave. In the same way that Democrats are kind of overstating the case for the turn of fortunes in their direction, Republicans were so certain six months ago, nine months ago, that they were going to have another 1994, a big giant year, kind of like the equivalent on the, on the Republican side of what Democrats did in 2018. I guess we've all got so used to the notion that that these midterm elections always produce giant wave elections. It used to not be like that. And it now has been like that really since, I guess, about 2002. It feels like every midterm election has a, another swing of the pendulum. Maybe like what we're really looking at is the possibility of a return to something that's much more stable. Where politics used to be that the swing is, maybe the swing will start to, to shrink. I don't know. I was just talking to a Democratic strategist the other day who said, well, we've gone from fairly hopeless to notably competitive. And, <laughs> and I think that's a very good way to, to state this, which is to say we're competitive if you're the, the Democrats. It doesn't mean that you're going to win everything. It doesn't mean that there's a blue wave. It means that races that were probably once off the table for Democrats are now 
back on the table. The other thing is that you were right. There was always the case to be made that a big wave was unlikely to produce big gains for Republicans in terms of numbers in the House or the Senate because of the map and the math. There just aren't that many, to your point, House seats now that are either very swingy and there aren't that many Democrats that sit in Trump districts. The House is pretty well sorted in terms of Democrats sitting in Democratic districts, Republicans sitting in Republican districts, Republicans starting from a much higher floor. They have more seats now, many more than they did in 1994 or 2010. And in the Senate, the map is great for Democrats. You couldn't ask for a better map. They don't have to win any Trump state to hold their majority. I mean, because I'm a, a dedicated reader of the, of the Cook Political Report, I'm more dedicated than most. And I can do this I literally off the top of my head. According to your guys' work, 188 safe Republican seats in the House, 162 safe Democratic seats in the House. You're really only 32 genuinely toss-up races in the House, which, Dave, is that like as few as there's ever been in the history of the Congress? No, I think there have been years that have been non-waves like 2004 when the toss-ups were a bit less. Uh, right. But uh, yeah, there are 213 seats that at least lean towards Republicans, 190 seats that at least lean towards Democrats, and those 32 toss-ups in the middle. So Republicans only have to win five of those 32 toss-ups to get the majority. It doesn't require a wave for them to get there. Just to add on to, to Amy's point about kind of the elasticity of the House, we're in an era of very high turnout. And one of the reasons why Republicans ran the table in 2010 and 2014 was that turnout fell through the floor in those years when Obama was not on the ballot. And that cost Democrats an awful lot of seats. Now that every election feels pretty much existential to the parties, I think we're in an era when less likely to see those big swings. And particularly after Dobbs, Democrats are demonstrating close to, if not more, enthusiasm than Republicans, even as independents still give the president low ratings on the economy. I think what that adds up to is that Democrats are better off in a lot of these Biden 5 to 15 seats that we once thought might be very, very competitive. And we're looking at a narrower band of races where Republicans are still the favorites to take control of the House with a narrow majority. But you know, there's considerable uncertainty about what our focus really will be in the next two months. And I think the Inflation Reduction Act and the student loan forgiveness give Republicans an opportunity to shift attention back on Democratic spending proposals and what they view as socialism. You you very helpfully or unhelpfully from my point of view, essentially in your first answer, took the basic points of a column you wrote in August. The headline of it was GOP controlled, no longer a foregone conclusion, referring to the House. And you laid out you know, that it was still very likely that Republicans were going to have control of the House at the end. But there was some path that Democrats could travel to keeping control of the House of Representatives. I mean, right now, if I asked you what the odds were or what likelihood you gave to Democrats being able to maintain control of the House of Representatives, you would say what? I'm in the 25 percent range. I'm generally in line with where Nate Silver and his crew are. Okay, But, you know, to get them there, they would really be running the table on a lot of these marginal Biden districts where Republicans have nominated pretty good candidates. Keep in mind a big difference between the Senate and the House. Well, first of all, you know, in the House, Republicans were able to gerrymander far more states than Democrats. That's something that doesn't really affect the Senate so much uh, at all. But second, 
Republicans have nominated, for the most part, pretty conventional, normal, neighborly candidates for House, whereas there are some, you know, eccentric, exotic Senate nominees. And we'll get to that. Yeah. But in the House, 34% of Republicans running in the most vulnerable Democratic districts are military veterans, 22% of them are non white. 26% of them are women, 61% are at least one of those things. There are three candidates that are all three of those things. And so these are people who don't look or sound like Donald Trump. That was a big reason why Republicans were able to pick up a dozen House seats in 2020. It's a reason why Republicans are bullish on some of these districts like Virginia's second district against Elaine Luria or against Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan or Frank Mervan in Indiana, who most people have never heard of. So if Republicans can break through in only a handful of these districts, plus their gains from redistricting in places like Florida, where DeSantis just overpowered his own legislature, then they should be able to get there. So I want to spend a little time talking about abortion. And it's your number one reason, Dave, that the environment has changed. It's everybody's, I think, number one reason. How much it's changed the environment is the where the debate lies. And I, I want to play one little one piece of sound. It's not really political sound, but it's, I think, indicative of post-Roe, now the Dobbs era when it comes to abortion rights. This is a, a little sound from a debate going on in the Republican-controlled South Carolina State Senate, where South Carolina State Senator named Katrina Sheely took to the floor last week and had some things to say about the legislature wanting to remove the exceptions for rape and incest in the state's proposed abortion ban that they're debating down there. Just listen to a little bit of this. This is that kind of thing we haven't heard a lot of in our politics in our lifetimes. But you ask, why am I talking about this? Isn't she pro-life? Yes, I'm pro-life. I'm also pro-life of the mother, the life she has with her children who are already born, I care about the children who are forced into adulthood that was made up by a legislature full of men so they can make, take a victory lap and feel good about it. You want children raising children who will most likely suffer domestic violence and live in poverty, but you don't care because you've done your job and you will forget about them once they are born. If you want to believe that God is wanting you to push a bill through with no exception that kills mothers and ruins the lives of children, lets mothers bring home babies to bury them, then I think you're miscommunicating with God. Or maybe you're just not communicating with him at all. So I repeat, that woman's a Republican in South Carolina, State Senator Katrina Sheely, Amy. And, you know, that's the kind of thing you're hearing in state legislatures all over the country now in the wake of Dobbs and in the wake of Kansas in particular. I want to ask you both about this because it's clearly a big deal what's happened. But you know, when you saw the results in the Kansas referendum, what did you take away from that? Did you look at that and say, man, like this really is a game changing development. The, the impact of this is going to be, could be, maybe is going to be as dramatic as people who have said, you know, if they repeal Roe v. Wade, there's going to be this giant backlash. Women are going to become activated. What do you think? Um, what, what did you take away from Kansas and what do you see out there on the horizon as we head towards November with this issue front and center and, you know, changing the nature of our politics? So when I saw Kansas, the first thing that came to mind is, hmm, an issue that polls 60 plus percent <laughs> for keeping Roe versus Wade actually is getting 60 plus percent of the of the vote, right? So right. something 
that's popular is actually getting enacted. You're asking voters directly to vote on it. At the same time, I also said, well, this is exactly that. It's asking voters to vote singularly on the issue of abortion. You don't have an intermediary like a candidate. When we talk about candidates, then we get into all the other issues that go along with being a candidate who has a position. But there are a whole bunch of other issues that go into the mix when you're thinking about who you vote for, Democrat or Republican, in many of these races. And and you heard this in Kansas, right, where folks would come out and say, well, I support I can't remember which side was, whether it was the yes side or the no side was the more right, approach. Right. Whatever it was. Uh, but whatever. Yes. Yeah. Who also were saying, yeah, but I'm, I'm probably going to vote Republican this fall. Right? right. It's, it is, they were making a very clean and clear distinction. What I expected actually, once the Dobbs decision was leaked, and then once it finally became a reality, was you were going to see Republican legislators or Republican candidates, especially in many of these swing states, go into the place where most voters are, which is somewhere between the 40-yard lines, to say, you know what, I'm pro-life, but I also believe, as you know, most Americans do, that there should be an exception. I believe there should be restrictions. I like the idea of having this restriction, but let's not go too far on over here. And try to like, really dampen this issue in the same way we've seen Democrats on the issue of crime and policing this year go on the offensive, right? They got so taken off balance in 2020 with defund the police and all of the violence in some of these major cities that they had tried to pretend wasn't there, right? Oh, this isn't an issue. Nobody believes that I would defund the police. How many of those candidates are coming out and being proactive on that? And so to me, the big question going forward for some of these Republicans is how do they keep the focus on the issue they want, which is Biden plus economy, without seemingly ignoring this big elephant in the room, which is abortion? Just thinking you're going to run all on economy and not address an issue that is clearly very important to a significant segment of voters, I don't think is completely sustainable. So that's where we are. Well, I thought there was something else you saw. I mean, to, to, to draw out the point, I thought where you, I thought you were going to go, which is the Republican candidates, a lot of Republican state legislatures and governors didn't say, hey, we just won this historic thing we've been fighting for for 50 years. Let's just take it a little easy here and try to get in the middle. And maybe we, we, we want to enact restrictions on abortion, but let's do that gradually. Let's, like, let's take this win and consolidate it. Instead, what they all did, a lot of states, is run out and do the most extreme things they could possibly do and give Democrats a lot of opportunity to say, the, these Republican legislators, they want to ban abortion completely in all ways for everybody in every circumstance. And then you had the thing with the young girl in Indiana that became a vivid symbol of how extreme some Republicans are or many Republicans are. And you suddenly had this this sense of like for a lot of people, maybe people in Kansas who are like through their whole life were basically I'm pro-life, but they always they thought Roe was a was settled law. They, they were kind of making a, 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 making exactly. a statement, you know, a free vote basically on that. And all of a sudden now it's like, wait, oh, wait, wait, my daughter? Who, if she gets raped or if she, you know, if her uncle Charlie impregnates her, she's not going to be able to get an abortion. Hold on a second. <laughs> I have a whole different point of view about this. And Dave, uh, this, this is the kind of the question that I wanted to ask you about. There was this piece in the New York Times by a guy named Tom Bonnier, 
uh, someone who I know, uh, someone who I think you know for sure. He's a Democrat who runs a, a big data firm, does some polling too, but really a data firm called Target Smart. It was a piece that came out over Labor Day weekend, and it was exactly what every Democrat wants to hear. Based in data, in things that he had seen, not just making political arguments or in analytical arguments, and he said... Once the actual Dobbs decision came down, everything changed. For many Americans, confronting the loss of abortion rights was different from anticipating it. In my 28 years of analyzing elections, I'd never seen anything like what's happened in the past two months in American politics. Women are registering to vote in numbers I had never witnessed before. I've run out of superlatives to describe how different this moment is, especially in light of psychosocial tragedy, et cetera, et cetera. He says, this is a moment to throw old political assumptions out the window and to consider the Democrats could buck historic trends the cycle precisely because of this. Now, now, look, Target Smart, he's a he's liberal, he's a Democrat, he's partisan, but he's also a smart guy and has access to a lot of data. What do you make of the Bonnier argument in terms of how it will play out this fall? Yeah, I know Tom pretty well. And the percentage of new registrants who are women, high Democratic propensity is pretty impressive since Dobbs. And yet the overall share of the fall electorate that is likely to be new voters is still quite a small share of the overall electorate. And so, yes, I, I think it is part of the enthusiasm gap that we're seeing close more broadly. You know, the NBC poll in April, I believe, had 66% of Republicans as extremely enthusiastic, a nine or 10 out of 10 about voting in the fall compared to 48% of Democrats. The most recent late August poll was 68% for Republicans to 66% for Democrats. So I, I think that's reflected. And in upstate New York, the special election that we recently saw between Pat Ryan, the Democrat, and Mark Molinaro, the Republican, Amy has pointed this out a bunch, the Republican was actually a pretty good candidate in a bellwether district. He's the right. county executive of a blue-leaning yep. county, Dutchess County. And he wanted to fight the race on Republican turf, which he saw as inflation and Biden. And he didn't mention yep. abortion. This is a wake-up call for Republicans because he lost by three points. And now Republicans are going to need to learn the art of the pivot. If they do, if they are between those 40 yard lines and favor exceptions, they're going to need to tell suburban voters that they do before pivoting to the economy and Biden. It would also be good if they didn't have, they were on the record repeatedly in the past as being against exceptions and then trying to convince people right. that, well, that, people that they hadn't changed their, their position. Able to pivot to right. that point. Yes. And talking and, to a Republican the other day who said to me, you know, if, if you were on camera saying these things, it's going to be really hard. I don't think you can win that argument to say, well, that was different then. That was then. I'm a different now. But again, I, you know, one place where I've seen a candidate try to do this, Dave, is, is that race in Virginia Beach where the Republican candidate went up on TV this week saying, you know, my opponent saying all these things about me that I'm an extremist. I'm not an extremist. I'm a mom. I'm a helicopter pilot. I served in the Navy. I'm right. She doesn't say the word abortion in that ad, but the focus being she's trying to really limit the ability for that tag to stick. And as Dave pointed out, what's going to be really interesting, you have so many races where you have a woman incumbent Democrat facing a female Republican challenger. And when the issue of right. abortion comes up, where do voters go there? Who is more believable on that question versus, say, a woman going up against, again, generic white dude and having that conversation? 
what we have seen over and over again in these cycles in midterm elections is usually the president is in trouble by the time you get to the midterms and he's in the president protection program. Most really battleground state Democrats or the members of the incumbent party, they don't want to be seen with the president. They're like, thanks very much, Joe Biden, just stay home. Do you think Biden's going to be a factor this fall? Are we going to see Biden out on the trail a lot? Dave, I'll start with you. I mean, look, by any historic standard, the man has passed a shit ton of stuff. And there's no way to, to quarrel with that at this point. Now, whether that moves the needle politically is a different matter. And there are obvious vulnerabilities attached to it in terms of a number of Republican arguments about inflation and spending. But are there going to be Democrats who are going to be like, yeah, a few months ago, I would not want Joe Biden in my district, but now I want him? Or is he just going to still have to basically have a nice long slumberly fall in the basement, as they would say back in 2020, Joe Biden, does he stay in the basement this fall? Yeah, here's the problem for Democrats. Joe Biden sees himself as the ultimate closer, right? He is still mm. marveling at the debate in which he talked to, you know, he called Paul Ryan's plans malarkey as helping <laughs> his ticket, uh, helping Obama yep. win re-election in 2012. And so yep. when he sees the environment getting better and he sees Republicans going out to the extreme, his inclination is to go out there and drive the closing argument. I, I can't tell you how many Democratic strategists have told me, I wish he would simply stay out of the way and let Republicans self-destruct, particularly in Senate races for the final two months. One thing that threatens to rein in Republicans' House gains is, as Amy alluded, there are a number of candidates who are exceptions to that neighborly you know, I'm not an extremist type of candidate. And, you know, John Gibbs, who beat Peter Meyer in Michigan's third district, told the Detroit News the other month that he believes there are many great Americans who are actually conceived by rape. Well, that's going to come up yes. in the Democrat Hillary Skolton's general election ads in a Biden plus eight district. And so there are probably five or yeah. six seats like that. But that's yeah. significant when the House could be close. Biden, big factor, no factor. He's a very uh, big factor. Yeah. He's in every single Republican ad right now. You can't go right. to any swing state or district and find Joe Biden better than, what, 44, 45% job approval rating. Right. So yeah. the more this election centers on Biden, certainly that would be better, which is why I was very curious about- The more, the more it centers on Biden, the, for Repub from the Republican point of view, the more it's centered on yeah, Biden. For it's still the case absolutely. that they can make this race about which Biden. Is why if they can really make this case about by Biden. Biden decision, the White House decision to go give that Philadelphia blood red, our democracies in peril speech. Because again, I think, yes, the more that Donald Trump's in the news, the more it reminds independent voters, those folks who showed up in 2018 and 2020, not necessarily to vote for Democrats, but to vote against Trump and Trumpism, it reminds them, oh, that's right. If he were in office, it'd be so much crazier. Glad he's not there anymore. Glad the chaos is gone. But then to see Biden really lean into this idea that, you know, we're kind of in this existential fight that this division is going to go on for a long time, that there's not going to be this healing or bridge building. I don't know that that is the kind of message. If, if I'm a Democratic incumbent running for re-election, I'm not going to be leaning into that message. I'm going to be leaning much more into, I was able to get things done in part because I can work with the other party because we need to be functional, not just throwing grenades at each other every two years. I'm going to come back around to the Trump question at the end because it's worth litigating in a little more detail. But I do want to th think about the Senate here because 
famously, Mitch McConnell in August gets up and says, you know what? I think that, you know, the House is likely to flip, but maybe the Senate's not. And the reason is candidate quality, which everyone read, I think accurately, as him saying, man, I got stuck with a bunch of winnable races here that we got stuck with some horrible candidates. And now he's in this big fight with Rick Scott over that matter. Rick Scott's like calling McConnell up treasonous, basically, for like, for being critical of Republican candidates. Let's play the, the other side of that coin here. Here's Rick Scott, who, you know, is in a big fight with Mitch McConnell. And yet, apparently, has spent 95% of the Republican Senate committee's money before Labor Day. He was asked about this on Fox News the other day, like, what the fuck? And this is what he said. Well, we did the right thing. We spent early. I mean, here's the problem with campaigns. If you wait until the last month, I mean, there's too much static. There's too much noise out there. So what we did, as soon as our candidates got through their primaries, we started helping them. We, ha- we put up ads with them to talk about what they believed in. And we started early on, we started defining the Democrats. So does any of this matter in terms of these Senate races? I mean, McConnell's basic point is Senate races are statewide races. They make their own wind and weather. You know, I mean, look, having more money is all, always great. But does it matter that McConnell and, and Rick Scott are at each other's throats? It doesn't affect ordinary voters. But is that a thing of any consequence? Or is this just all noise where the signal is really, yeah, these candidates in a lot of cases really do suck. And we'll talk about that more. Dave, what do you think? Well, look, that would be a good strategy, what Rick Scott outlined, if it allowed Republicans to drive a sustainable message throughout the summer and fall. Uh, What we actually (laughs) have seen, though, is Democratic candidates who are paying a lower rate for advertising, exerting their financial advantage throughout the summer over Republican candidates who have had to run farther to the right to get past primaries. Keep in mind, that the Arizona primary was not until August. The New Hampshire primary is September 13th. So Republicans have spent this time and money attacking each other. And so far, the the polls have not reflected any uh, much influence from national Republicans coming in and spending those dollars to try and attack Democrats while these primaries are ongoing. I mean, that's what's so different this cycle then, let's say back in 2018, when Democrats were on the offensive and the amount of money that was flowing into first-time candidates, house races, right? How much did John Ossoff raise, Dave, in that special election in Georgia 6, right? I mean, this was a special election for one house district a candidate that was first time, very green, wasn't exactly a household name. Was it $30 million he raised? I, I think it was in that ballpark, yeah. Okay. So here you have Republicans on the verge of taking the House and the Senate, and their candidates can't raise any money. And nobody raised money right. over the last year to start dinging up the Democratic incumbents effectively. I went back and looked at the most vulnerable Senate incumbents, all of them over the course of this cycle, money has been spent either by them or outside groups. More money has been spent talking to voters in a positive way about those incumbents than a negative way, sometimes by as much as three to one, but on average by two to one. So those incumbents were able to sort of create their own image. And really, I think it pumped up their approval ratings or their favorable ratings. It's part of the reason that you see that they're running ahead of Biden. Now, the question is, how long does that last? And I think this is really the 64 million or whatever million now with inflation, 68 million um, dollar (laughs) question. 
is <laughs> does that matter? Because once we get to the fall, when voters do start really paying attention and the flood of media comes down, of media spending by Republicans will be there. And it's going to come raining down on these Democratic candidates. And it's no longer a three to one, four to one Democratic advantage. It will be closer to one to one, although Democrats could still outspend. Will right. all the work that they built, all the time that they spent building up their approval ratings ultimately pay off? And this is where we get to your point, John, about the Republican candidate being able to take advantage of it. And so many of them yeah. are so flawed that they may not be able to do that. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Amy Walter and Dave Wasserman of the Cook Political Report here on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. If I look at my political report and I look at the, the Senate race ratings, you can do a pretty good, you very quickly figure out just on the basis of, of a little elementary deduction, what the hot Senate races are going to be. And of course, that matches perfectly with where we're all paying attention. You guys talk about in these races that there's basically, and Democrats hold 14 seats, Republicans hold 21 seats of the 35 that are being contested. You've got three of the Democratic seats are in the toss-up category right now in Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada, and one Republican toss-up seat in Wisconsin where Ron Johnson is. But there's one that is the only one where there's a, a party that holds the seat currently. It's now leaning in the other direction, and that's Pennsylvania, where everybody's paying a lot of attention to John Fetterman and Dr. Oz. And I want to play... We've all been waiting for John Fetterman to finally start doing interviews again for a long time. His wife was doing interviews. He was doing digital video, but he wasn't getting on television to answer questions after his stroke. He finally did that and went on MSNBC and did an interview with Stephanie Rule. And she sort of started out by saying, because this has been a big issue, and Dr. Oz is making it more of one every day. Stephanie Rule basically started the interview by asking him how he's doing, how he's feeling. I'm, I'm feeling amazing, actually. The truth is that I actually feel much better than I have felt in, in quite a while, uh, honestly. That's that's the, the truth. I'm walking four or five miles every day uh, and making sure that we're taking all the medication that the doctors have all uh, prescribed and just actually feel fantastic. I'm just so grateful that uh, I, not only that I survived because I was close to uh, the state's top stroke facility uh, and I was able to get there quickly and that has allowed me to survive and to be now running a very successful campaign right now as a result. And the only lingering issue is every now and then I will have auditory processing and I might miss a word every now and then, or uh, I might mush two words together. But that's really the, the effect of it now. They have decided that the script for him is, he talks about survival, how lucky he is. Then he says over and over again, lingering issue, auditory processing, might miss a word, might mush two words together. He says it like three or four times in the course of the interview. He keeps coming back to it. Amy, I mean, I know Democrats. I'm not talking about Republicans who are trashing John Fetterman. I mean, most Democrats I know have been looking at Pennsylvania saying, Dr. Oz is a horrible candidate. John Fetterman should win this race if he's healthy. And they're all nervous that he might not be as healthy as they would like him to be. I know you must hear this all the time. The donor class is worried about it. Where do you think that stands right now in terms of his ability to be able to run this race and win it like all Democrats think he can if he's in good shape? 
Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. At the very beginning of the cycle, the attacks on John Fetterman from Republicans were pretty clear what they were going to paint him as a phony, right? Here's a guy who looks and acts and talks like he's basically a, a kind of a Trump type <laughs> populist, but really he is a socialist, liberal dilettante. He's not who he says he is. Well, it's really hard for Dr. Oz to make the case that somebody is not who they say they are, right? Or is a a dilettante. That's right. So that got taken off the table. And instead, they now have this area in which to go after Fetterman, which is much more fraught, right? On the one hand, you're right, to raise questions, can this guy do the job? And part of the argument early on that I think was effective that the Oz campaign was making is they weren't being transparent. What really happened to this guy? Why didn't we hear from him for days? Wait a minute. Why do you need a pacemaker for a stroke? Well, why didn't we hear about this earlier? So the transparency thing, I think, was one problem for them that they've kind of moved beyond that. But the next question is, is not just like, how is he going to do in a debate or on the campaign trail? But how well, because the ads are now starting, how well is he going to be able to push back on the, this guy's just too liberal. He's not this guy. But the one worry I would have if I were a Republican really leaning in on this health thing is there's a lot of sympathy for people who have medical conditions. If you don't know somebody who's had a stroke, but you know someone who's had a heart attack or other event, the idea that it feels like they're being mocked that really can come and blow back on you. Well, let's actually, I want to play, let's play that real quick. Here's what Fetterman said in that interview, precisely on this point. They understand that Dr. Oz's campaign is in shambles. Whether you look at the polls, you look at the fundraising, you know, they've just figured out that, you know, let's uh, appeal to folks that get their jollies, you know, you know, uh, making fun of the stroke dude. And when you look around and realize that there's Pennsylvanians all across the state that have serious health crises in their own life. And I don't think anybody would want a doctor in their lives making fun of them or laughing at at their circumstances. But I just happen to have a doctor in my life to do just that. That to me is a strong piece of communication. And Dave Wasserman, I ask you, you know, taking all things into account here, the Federal people have done a masterful job, which, which Oz has helped them with, of making him seem like a weirdo. Um, he has too many houses. He's not really from Pennsylvania. He, there's that picture they play all the time of him kissing the Hollywood star, getting on his hands and knees and kissing Hollywood Boulevard, <laughs> which is, truly is one of the weirdest things I've ever seen somebody do. Like if you've ever seen Hollywood Boulevard, you don't want to put your lips on that. As you look at this race from a more scientific standpoint, what do you think is going to drive the outcome in the end in the Pennsylvania Senate race? John, every time I see candidates who try and be something they're not, it, it typically doesn't turn out that well. And, you know, Dr. Oz, every attempt he makes to try and come across as a regular guy seems to dig him into a deeper hole. I don't think the crudite thing has spread that widely, but it's talking about supporting small businesses while he goes to Pat's or Geno's, which no Philly voter really visits on a regular basis, right? And I'm curious on Fetterman's side whether he will cut an ad in which he leans into the story of his recovery as an inspirational or sympathy building way of preempting some of the Oz attacks and also coming across as a foil against Oz, who appears to be taunting Fetterman right. and, and basically coming across as an asshole. Right. And Fetterman's now agreed to do a debate, which will take away some of the, for a little while, you know, Oz was able to season the notion that he was ducking the debate. Now he's agreed to have it. Amy, it's like when you think about Pennsylvania politics, 
Like if you think just culturally, physically, in terms of how they come across, you think about the kind of candidate that wins in Pennsylvania statewide. I mean, Fetterman is that candidate and Dr. Mehmet Oz is not. Even if he happened to really have a permanent residence in Pennsylvania, you know, central Pennsylvania, as James Carville likes to say, is the South. That guy is a defeat, a rich phony. That's how he's going to read in a lot of places in, in working class Pittsburgh and a lot of the center of the state. He's not the ideal candidate. And the Republicans have Donald Trump to thank for that. And it's not just the center of the state where races are won and lost in Pennsylvania now. It's in Wilkes-Barre. It's in Scranton. It's right. in Erie. Yep. And that's how Biden won there, right? It's not just running up the score in the Philadelphia suburbs and doing better in the Pittsburgh suburbs, but it's doing just that much better than Hillary Clinton did in those sorts of towns that Democrats used to do really well in. You know, the Casey family was from Scranton. Democrats used to have a lot of that northeastern part of the state because they were the working class party. And for the last few years, the kinds of candidates that Democrats have run in, in Pennsylvania are ones that the model is, well, they can run up the score in the Philly suburbs and we can just turn out enough voters there to be able to win. Well, Philly suburbs just aren't enough. So right. you've got to be able to pick up some of those other sort of working class areas. But I, I will caution that it is still Pennsylvania. It is a swing state. It is a state that Biden carried, but it is a state that over the last, let's call it 10 or so years, has been moving more to the right than the Democratic number is, right? If they're, if a candidate or the national House number is, say, 52 percent, they would be 50 percent in Pennsylvania. So it is still has that red tinge, which I think still gives Oz a little bit of a silver lining here. Oh, a way, a way potentially, like, a way potentially to win. He's not, you, you would say basically. Yeah, tell he's not like, this is not him running. You know, a lot of folks compare this cycle to the Christine O'Donnell race, right? right? right. Well, he's, he's not, I'm not this a is witch. Not Delaware. He's not, I'm this not is a not witch. Washington yeah. state where, you know, Biden won by 20 points. This is a very swingy state, which has, I would argue, more of a Republican tinge to it. Well, here's another really swingy state for you, which is Georgia, right? Where as bad as Oz has been, I would say in a not partisan way, I don't think I've seen in a major Senate race, I don't think I've seen a more obviously incompetent candidate than Herschel Walker. Now, he is a legend in Georgia. We always say it. We come back to that. We say again and again, football is king in Georgia. He was a great running back. And yet, like every time he goes on camera, there's a reasonable chance that he's going to say something or do something that will be catastrophic. Dave Wasserman, I can't think of a state, and there are a bunch we can talk about where Donald Trump's chosen candidate has put Republicans in a worse position in the Senate than they, than they were before. How much do you think having Herschel Walker, who can be credibly accused of having put a gun against his ex-wife's head and, and who every time he goes on camera, as I said, is, you know, does not seem like the brightest bulb in the chandelier. How much is that hurting their prospects of taking a Senate seat that if you look at what's going on in the governor's race should be eminently winnable for a Republican? Because right now, Brian Kemp is, you know, putting a lot of distance between himself and Stacey Abrams, it looks like. Georgia is such a racially polarized state that you're never going to see a, a Senate race, at least in, in this current era, that is leaning very strongly one way or the other. And it says something about Herschel Walker's appeal and charisma and staying power that, yes, his responses on a lot of policy questions have been downright incoherent, yet he is still hanging right there with Raphael Warnock in the polls. It seems as if Brian Kemp is going to win the governor's race. The question is how many 
Kemp Warnock voters are there in the Atlanta suburbs. I suspect that if Brian Kemp were on the Senate ballot against Raphael Warnock, he'd be up a handful of points. But Walker makes this a pure toss up. That's, a, I think, a great analysis, and, and it's a super interesting state. You, you sound very confident, Dave, just to like pin this down because like, we can put it aside be done with it now. You think that it is the case that Kemp is a, what, a prohibitive favorite against Stacey Abrams? Well, I look at it this way. Particularly in the northern Atlanta suburbs, there are a ton of Romney voters who are uncomfortable with Trump. And they want to vote for a Republican. Yes. And they give Kemp credit for standing up to Trump after the 2020 election. And for them... That is enough. That is what they need to pull the lever for a Republican and oppose policies that they see as too far left on Stacey Abrams' part. Right. Amy, I'm gonna, I am gonna. want to go back to Walker and just do this. So we've seen the ads, Super PAC ads against him with his ex-wife, the kind of negative ad that no mere mortal would ever be able to survive. And, and as Dave points out, Herschel Walker's not out of that race yet, and he's still hanging in there. It's gonna, There's going to be more spending on that race, I think, there's more TV time booked in that race than any other Senate race in the in the country. And that always tells you when there's a really competitive race going on. Here's the first real Herschel Walker ad that I've seen that has that struck me as notable. This is maybe the first negative ad that Walker has run against Raphael Warnock. Herschel Walker decides to inject race into a campaign between himself, he is an African-American, and Raphael Warnock, also an African-American. Let's take a listen to how Herschel Walker tries to do that. I do absolutely agree that it's racist. It is a redux of Jim Crow in a suit and tie. America has a long history of systemic racism. You ain't black. America has a pre-existing condition. It's called racism. Senator Warnock believes America is a bad country full of racist people. I believe we're a great country full of generous people. Warnock wants to divide us. I want to bring us together. I'm Herschel Walker. I approve this message. Casey Abrams. Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, Raphael Warnock, all saying things that Herschel is picking on there. Is that an effective ad, Amy? Is that a card that can help Herschel Walker to win this race? Well, going back to Dave's point about the North Atlanta suburban voter who is not a big fan of Democratic policies, does think <laughs> the Democratic Party is too woke. It was frustrated with many of the culture war conversations that have been brought up for these last couple of years, it gives them an opportunity to say, I agree with what Herschel Walker's saying, right? If he doesn't think this is true, if this man who's African-American, played in the NFL, doesn't believe this is real, well, we should believe him, right? Why am I believing these woke college professors who are telling me I have to believe X, Y, and Z. So, you know, making those suburban voters feel as if he is not going to be a bigger risk than putting Donald Trump in. He's also somebody that has not spent a whole lot of time and he hasn't had to. I mean, this is the one thing about Walker that is important. Unlike so many of these other candidates, especially in Oz, or we have this primary in New Hampshire, or when we're thinking about Arizona, that Senate race, he didn't have a real primary. So he didn't right. need to spend a whole lot of time kissing up to Donald Trump, moving himself way over to the right, right in a primary, got no money spent against him in a primary. And I, I do think that has put him in a much better position than obviously in odds who got bazillions of dollars during that primary. 
So, Dave, I want to ask you about Ohio, because, again, you know, the, the media is fixated on these races for and with good reason, places where Donald Trump made a choice in the primary and got the candidate through that he wanted. J.D. Vance would not be the Republican nominee for Senate in Ohio if it wasn't for Donald Trump. And this is a race where, you know, you guys, it's a lean Republican state. A lot of people consider Ohio increasingly basically a red state, Sherrod Brown notwithstanding. And yet some series of things have occurred by which J.D. Vance doesn't seem to be campaigning very much in Ohio. And suddenly that race looks more competitive. There's polling that puts Tim Ryan, his, his opponent, ahead. And here you have, and Ryan is, is well-funded. He's a, kind of a Sherrod Brown-ish, a blue-collar white guy. Here's an ad of his where he goes hard at J.D. Vance, the author of Hillbilly Elegy, people will recall, and former venture capitalist, a Silicon Valley venture capitalist before he came home to run for Senate in Ohio. Here's Tim Ryan's ad attacking J.D. Vance on the opioid crisis. Joe was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis when he was three. At 15, a doctor prescribed Joe OxyContin for the pain. Months later, he was addicted. It's not just that J.D. Vance pretended to help kids like Joe. He brought in a woman funded by the drug companies for their own benefit. They continue to profit and our kids keep dying. I lost Joe and J.D. only helped himself. I'm Tim Ryan and I approve this message. This brings back uh, memories of 2012 when Priorities USA, the Obama super PAC, decided to accuse Mitt Romney of having killed the guy, basically, <laughs> when he threw some work that he did at Bain. It's basically like Tim Ryan's like, yeah, J.D. Vance just killed that guy, Joe. Pumped those opioids straight into his body. That's the flavor of this race right now. What do you make of the Ohio race, Dave, and, and whether J.D. Vance is really in trouble? Yeah, Ohio has kind of become Lucy in the football for Democrats. I mean, obviously, Sherrod Brown did win re-election in 2018, but since the primary, J.D. Vance has been allergic to fundraising and he obviously has needed to be bailed out by his party. I, that's not going to be the case in terms of the lopsidedness of communication between now and Election Day. And you're going to hear Republican ads that say, even though Tim Ryan talks tough on China, he has voted with Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden 95% of the time or in the House including on the most recent major legislation that Democrats passed along party lines. And Ohio is a state that did vote for Donald Trump by eight points twice. So I, I am still fairly skeptical on Democrats' chances there. The races that are in play in the Senate and the races that we care about in the governorships, where are you looking at potential surprises? There's obviously a congealing conventional wisdom around some of these races, and a lot's going to change over the next 60 days or so. But what do you master of data, master of the election night call. What are you looking at going, people aren't paying enough attention to this? Yeah, well, one race we, we don't talk a lot about is New Hampshire. And we still don't have a Republican nominee in New Hampshire, but the odds are that it will be a very Trump-style candidate, Don Balduck, who's been leading in the polls, who is not Governor Chris Sununu's choice there. And Democrats believe they've got the advantage in that race because they can portray Balduck as a Mike Flynn type extremist. Well, I think the $64,000 question in races like Carrie Lakes in Arizona or Don Balduck's in New Hampshire is what do the popular Republican governors do after the primary? And Doug Ducey has fallen in line behind Carrie Lake. Let's see what Chris Sununu does with his 70% or high 60% approval rating in New Hampshire after the primary if his candidate, Chuck Morris, loses because that party unity would be essential to Republicans' chances in what is really a very politically elastic state. There are a ton of independent voters 
in New Hampshire. And right. I, I still believe that Maggie Hassan is vulnerable. Right. The, the, the headline there is Wasserman thinks Democrats shouldn't sleep on the possibility that Maggie Hassan could lose. Or that these Trump style candidates are automatic losers in these races. I don't think that independent voters see, oh, well, they're an election denier, can't vote for them. Right. Uh, that's really, they're not looking at that issue as core to their everyday experience. All right, uh, Dave Wasserman, I know you got to go. You uh, were gracious and generous to give us any of your time today. And now we're going to have to somehow, somehow survive without you. But luckily, we have Amy Walter here who will certainly guide us through the third part of the podcast. We'll come back and have that third part of the podcast one-on-one with Amy Walter, the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Political Report, after these messages right here on Hell on High Water. Welcome back to Hell on High Water. Amy, we, we got excited. We got you solo now, and uh, there's a bunch of races we can try to get through here. There's a lot to talk about, and I want to start with Arizona, where, I mean, a, a state that, uh, not a battleground state, not a swing state until recently. Now, suddenly, the eyes of the world are on Arizona because Joe Biden won it in 2020, and people wonder whether he can win it again in 2024. And you had this extraordinary spectacle uh, when the primary played out, and essentially an entire slate of pro-Trump Trump-backed Republican candidates uh, basically won up and down the ballot in every significant race in Arizona, a secretary of state, the attorney general, uh, the gubernatorial candidate. Uh, and in this case, that's what I want to talk about is the gubernatorial candidate who won there, Carrie Lake, who is a full-on election denier, totally in Trump's camp about, about the 2020 election being stolen. And she, during her primary, started talking about how that election was likely to be stolen also, kind of laying the groundwork for her to lose. Where do we know that trick from, uh, from the Trump playbook? And on the night of the primary, Carrie Lake got cornered at her, at her election night party by uh, one of my colleagues and someone you know well, Vaughn Hilliard from NBC News. And Vaughn Hilliard uh, went straight in on Carrie Lake on the question of her claims that there was fraud in the election that she was about to, in fact, win that night. Uh, so this is a little, sometimes a little difficult to hear, but let's listen to Vaughn Hilliard go after Carrie Lake here in Arizona, and we'll talk about it on the other side. Your Honor, contending that there's irregularities and there is fraud in this election, at what point does Kerry Lake stop and say, am I undermining American faith in our election? Is Kerry Lake going to help bring back honest elections to America? But you haven't even laid out any fraud or irregularities. But what fraud is there, Kerry? What fraud is there? This is serious. No, I, this is about Arizona voters and their faith in this election. So that was Carrie Lake. I know about irregularities, but I'm not going to tell you about it because you're from the liberal media. She also didn't tell law enforcement authorities about it or anybody else who could have done anything about it. But, you know, um, Amy, that's the story down there in Arizona, right? You had Democrats all over the country and in Arizona wishing, praying for the furthest right-wing candidates to win, often election deniers in these in these primaries because they thought they would be the easiest to beat. In some cases, they actively got involved and tried to help those candidates win on the theory that they would be easier to beat in the general election. And what they got in a lot of places was what they wished for, uh, which is a uh, could work out could work out fine, or it could be 
you know, could lead to the nightmare scenario where some of these people actually get elected. And in Arizona, it's particularly striking, as I suggested earlier, basically every important elected office in the state of Arizona has now uh, running for it as the Republican nominee and out front election denier in 2020. And, you know, who knows? Some of them could win. Maybe all of them could win. I mean, you know, I mean, what do you think about what do you think some of them, all of them? What do you think? So you can absolutely see that one of them, I think Carrie Lake has the best chance of all of those folks to win because she already has a built in like people in that state know her. And if we learned anything from the Trump era, it's that when you're on TV for a long time, people think they know you. All these ads saying that Donald Trump is, you know, a deadbeat. Donald Trump really is bankrupt. Donald Trump doesn't really have all this money. He's not really a successful businessman. People didn't believe it. They're like, I saw him on The Apprentice. He has gold bathrooms. He has a private plane. Carrie Lake, she's not that crazy. I saw her in my, she was in my kitchen every morning for 20 years. So there are people for whom it will be easier for Democrats to label as extremists and that they're believable in the minds of voters. Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, I think, will be that candidate, in part because people really don't know who he is at all. He's starting from scratch. And in part because he doesn't have any money and no one's helping him. And he's running a campaign essentially from, you know, his kitchen. Yeah. And not in a good way. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I believe he was actually president of the Capitol on January 6th among the the rioters. So that makes the case all the more easy to prosecute for uh, candidate Josh Shapiro. Does bring us back to this question that I wanted to come back around to, which is Trump, right? And And we sort of like touched on it a little bit earlier, but you know, the one big issue is Roe slash Dobbs slash abortion slash women. There's this other thing, you know, Democrats widely thought back before the Mar-a-Lago search and seizure, and we got into classified materials and documents and all that. Every Democrat I talked to when Trump started saying in the middle of the one six committee hearings, he might run for president. He might launch his campaign in the fall. Every Democrat was like, please, please throw right. us into that briar patch. Make Donald Trump the face of the Republican party. That's the only chance we have. Yeah. And now it's even more extreme because on top of the 1-6 committee, you've now got the possibility that Trump had nuclear secrets in his basement at Mar-a-Lago for God knows what reason he might get indicted either before or after the election. What do you think the Trump factor is in practice, given he sucks up more oxygen than anybody else in our politics? And right. and, I mean, and, it, and, and it's different. His politics are the, how it affects. There's two real questions here. How does it affect the general election for all these down ballot Republicans? And how does it affect his personal politics? And I think those are different questions with different answers, maybe. Well, the personal politics, let's start there, because, again, in theory, if Republicans do fail to pick up the Senate, it's very easy to point the finger right at Donald Trump and say, these are sure. your candidates who yeah. ran on your style of politics yeah. and your conspiracy theories about the election and they all lost and your seal of approval and your seal of approval like stamped on your forehead exactly so why would we put again this is i'm speaking in the mind of a theoretical hypothetical republican voter why would i risk nominating donald trump in 2024 because he lost those states in 2020 his candidates lost those states in 2022 He's the wrong candidate. We need somebody else, right? Theoretically, that should help somebody like a Ron DeSantis, except (laughs) that after 2020, you would have thought there were some Republicans who obviously believe this, but many who said, you know what? Sure. Trump lost the election, lost these key swing states, lost the Senate for us, lost the House. 
in 2018. But you know what? Yes. We should do more cowbell, more Trump cowbell, right? (laughs) Bing, 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 bing. You're not hearing from at least the Republican primary electorate. We just want to win. And that's what Democrats did in 2020, right? They were not necessarily excited about Joe Biden, but they wanted to beat Donald Trump. In 2018, the more moderate candidates made their way out of these House and Senate primaries. Again, this wasn't making an ideological statement. We just want to win so that Donald Trump doesn't have the House and the Senate in Republican control. That didn't happen on the Republican side. So I I don't know that we're going to be able to take anything away from Donald Trump's future. I think it is true. The more that the media spotlight is on Mar-a-Lago, Fulton County, January 6th, election denial. It reminds voters about what they dislike about Trump and potentially, I think it's what's behind motivating Democratic voters. As much as Dobbs is a motivator, so is Trump. At the same time, it's really, really hard to make a former president the centerpiece of an election campaign, right? It is. I mean, we've never had anybody like Trump, so I understand that. We've never had a 50-year precedent overturned right before a midterm election. So this is very new territory. But making the election all about Trump, I think even Democrats in those tough races, I don't think you're going to hear them talking as much about Trump as you are about- um, Extremism. About yeah, extremism, exactly. Right? I mean, exactly. it seems like the way in which it, again, this is not, I'm not saying this is going to work, but d- Democrats who were looking into the abyss here, the following things all happened. You had Uvalde and a lot of Republicans, even though some gun safety measures got passed, still a lot of crazy Republican talk. It's still many states that are, continue to maintain that you should be able to buy a gun before you can buy beer. Extremism. You know, you had the repeal of Roe v. Wade, extremism. You had Donald Trump in the 1-6 committee, extremism. You can't run against Trump. I think a, Democrat, a Democratic message person sitting on this podcast would say, we don't want to run against Trump, but Trump helps us tie it all together. Absolutely. He puts a face on the argument of this party that's slavishly devoted to this man who continues to steal classified documents and, and lead an insurrection. They're the same party who also wants to take away abortion and wants to have guns everywhere and doesn't care about mass shootings. He's the bow, the binding agent that they can make the argument. This party is just out of step with yeah. normal America, right? That's, yeah. I think, their their hope. That it they is, and that's, and that's that. usually very hard to do for the in-party in a midterm sure. election, right? Because totally. midterm elections, not just because right. they're a referendum on the party in power, but usually why that party in power, especially one that has the House, the Senate, and the White House, why they lose the midterms is that voters think that they overreached, right? They went too far with their partisan agenda, or they were just focused on the issues that mattered to their base and not the center of the electorate. In this case, Democrats have a very compelling message when they say, you know what? It's Republicans who are upsetting the status quo. It's Republicans that are taking things too far on the issue of abortion, not us. And so this idea about who's upsetting the apple cart, who's really being the disruptor here, not in a positive disruptive way, but in a breaking something that was working kind of way, that's where Republicans, at least today, that's where they sit. So I want to ask you about a few more races uh, that are getting a ton of attention, and I, and I think we can do them and knock them out all real quick. Do you think Gretchen Whitmer's in a in a, a real trouble as in her race for I mean, it's re-election? Still, right. 
it's it's gonna spend a ton of money that's the that's the race that like the herschel walker race the governor's race in michigan is gonna right now is the most ad had it's the most ad spending pre-booked for the fall it's gonna be like a you know the airway is gonna be saturated there i don't she doesn't look that vulnerable to me no she does not and look i will tell you not the fact that one her opponent's positions on abortion not only has she been uh, taking positions that are far outside the mainstream in terms of abortion, but she's been recorded saying these things, right? So she, yeah. she's been like, it's there for people to see. Um, and this is not just a, he said, she said, or she said, she said, this is, you actually said this and then you defended it. And now you have the uh, you know codifying abortion access on the ballot in Michigan. That's also going to help, um, Whitmer. I think you can tell a lot by when you, when you talk to Republicans uh, who are involved in governor's races, you can tell a lot by where they're directing you to pay attention to, right? right. And where they're not. Um, I don't hear a lot about Michigan. I don't hear a lot about Pennsylvania. I'm hearing a lot about New Mexico, I'm hearing a lot right. about Oregon. Now, hmm. those are states that normally, right? We don't, we don't think about those as competitive states, but in both cases, Republicans like their chances in part because, um, you know, on in New Mexico, you have border issues as well as crime issues. Same, the same issues in, in, in Oregon, um, a very unpopular governor who's not running for re-election, but, um, you know, they are hoping to take advantage of the fact that it's a three-way race there with right. an independent candidate as well as a, as a Democrat. So the fact that, you know, uh, Republicans are are looking to sort of non-traditional places to pick up states can tell you all you need to know about where the race is um, in, in, again, in our traditional battlegrounds of Pennsylvania and Michigan. Now, Wisconsin's a state that will be very, very close. It's always yeah. a one or two point race. Yeah. Well, uh, now that you mention it, the Wisconsin Senate race is another race that we definitely should talk about. According to the esteemed August, always right, uh, never in doubt, Cook Political Report, this is rated as a pure toss-up race. A Republican incumbent running against uh, against Mandela Barnes. I want to hear what you have to say about this in a second. But Johnson is coming out swinging uh, in this race. He's going hard in what I would say are some pretty, in an early way, it's pretty racially freighted uh, ways against Mandela Barnes. And it's still early for that kind of campaigning. Here's this ad he put out late last month uh, that's, that was called Barnes and the Squad. This is what the campaign is going to be like uh, this fall. The Socialist Squad is leading the charge to defund our police. Defunding the police has to happen. We need to defund the police. We need to completely dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department. No surprise, crime is on the rise. Mandela Barnes would eagerly join their squad. Barnes wanted to abolish ICE, open our borders to illegal immigrants, and release violent felons without bail. Mandela Barnes, dangerously liberal on crime. Shades of Willie Horton. It sounds like that adds very redolent of a lot of uh, a lot of old Republican themes uh, and Trumpy, very Trumpy themes. It feels very 2020 to me, like defund the police. We're still talking about that. Do you think Mandela Barnes, on the basis of his record and his skin tone, his pigmentation, is vulnerable on this issue? You think Ron Johnson can run this crime, immigration, all these these kind of white grievance issues against this young black candidate who's very compelling in a lot of ways and, and attractive and seen as a rising star. Is that the Johnson ticket to survival? 
Now, Mandela Barnes also does have a pretty liberal liberal record. record. I, 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 he's very progressive. Like, yeah. the, the make so, no, make so no you don't mistake. have to. He's now, very progressive. But you're right in that, you know, it would be really interesting to put up Mandela Barnes's positions and issues up against Tammy Baldwin, who's also one of those little members of the United yes. States Senate. Yes. Um, and it, what was interesting, though, if you if you watch Tammy Baldwin campaign, um, one, she is white, <laughs> um, but she doesn't really talk about any issue that is not kitchen table sort of issue for somebody who I would say ta- who, I would say tapio I would say tapioca tapioca like, is like, fine she is right? ta- she's a, a tapioca, very tapioca, a tapioca candidate right yeah and this from a very liberal you know Dane County she was a Madison legislator and city council person <laughs> yeah. she was there on um you know Medicare for all long before right. we started hearing about this from Bernie Sanders or at least before that became you know, sort of a nationally recognized position. There's no doubt that that's, that's a piece of this where Johnson starts. Uh, and if you don't follow, for those of you listening, if you don't follow the um, good folks in Milwaukee at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, you should. It's a, it's a fantastic paper with great yes. political reporters, really, really top-notch reporters. And good polling and, in that state too. It's like that Marquette and, Law School right, is a the fantastic poll. And what the, so strong. What the Marquette poll this year has showed is that you know even though ron johnson is a very polarizing figure he's never been particularly popular he's more polarizing now than ever he's more unpopular now than ever um and yet you know mandela barnes isn't as well known and it will probably be easier for johnson to come after him as an urban politician who's out of step with issues that the majority of people in the in the state agree on but um the other thing about the state of wisconsin if you're a democrat to win there you really do need a couple of things to happen you need to be able to run up the score in madison you need to turn out the african-american vote in milwaukee that is a critical piece of it as well and hope that you can at least not lose as badly in and around the Milwaukee suburbs. Um, and, and, and maybe just maybe turnout will be down in the rural areas, but I, I don't think that's going to be the case, but this is a state that is so polarized. That is so, as, as Dave would say, inelastic that, you know, both sides basically start at 48% and the fight is over the last 2% every single year. The last race I want to ask you about, it'll be an easy discussion because I know exactly what you're going to say, but if you go back to 2018, the last midterms, there were three national races. One was Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. Everyone paid attention. Donors around the country. In Florida, Andrew Gillum runs against Ron DeSantis, very promising African-American candidate in Florida, mm-hmm. narrowly loses to DeSantis and then ends up having some significant troubles with crystal methamphetamine. The other race that everyone paid attention to, Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke. Oh, for right. In Texas, we were obsessed with that race, national race, better than runs for president, doesn't do so well. And then he comes back and now he's running for for governor against Greg Abbott. And he's an object of liberal fascination and adulation. Uh, A lot of things like about Better O'Rourke, but some things that have kept him from, you know, doing as well as some people think he might or should. I want to play this last piece of sound. It'll be familiar to you. Uh, Amy, better work at a town hall in Mineral Well, Texas, talking about guns back in August. I'm going to make sure that now 11 weeks since we lost 
19 kids, and their two teachers, shot to death with a weapon originally designed for use in combat, legally purchased by an 18-year-old who did not try to obtain one when he was 16 or 17, but followed the law that's on the books, ladies and gentlemen, that says that you can buy not one, you can buy two or more if you want to, AR-15s, hundreds of rounds of ammunition, and take that weapon that was originally designed for use on the battlefields in Vietnam to penetrate an enemy soldier's helmet at 500 feet and knock him down dead up against kids at five feet. It may be funny to you, motherfucker, but it's not funny to me, okay? So that clip is the better work story in a nutshell to me. You know, someone like that got, got circulated on Twitter. It was played on cable news and every progressive I know was like, yeah, man, I love that guy's passion. And I want to be clear, I, I like his passion too. And I agree with him about guns. But I remember hearing a story about that, about the fact that he campaigned in every, in like every district, every congressional district when he ran against Ted Cruz, a lot of those very conservative Democratic districts. And people were like, he's showing up, he's doing the work. And then he would drop an F-bomb. And there were these culturally conservative, a lot of them Hispanic Democrats who were like, yeah, you know, and, and people like, People who know Texas Republican politics, as soon as Beto got nominated, they said, there's no way Abbott's going to lose now. Beto O'Rourke cannot get elected statewide in Texas. That's the view of the, the smartest Republicans in Texas I know. Yeah. Is that your view? You, you yeah, and look, it's always hard. If Stacey Abrams is having this challenge as well, it's hard to come back after you lose and go on to win. And right. you know as well as anybody, politics is all about timing. And you know, we could be having a very different conversation had Abrams, instead of running for governor and waiting until 2022, would have right. run for the Senate in 2020. I, I don't begrudge her for making her, no, her no, choice. No, no. Everybody has their reasons for, for when or how they choose to, to do this. But that was clearly the better lane for her, um, especially given how much stronger Brian Kemp looks after his absolute crushing of David yeah, Perdue in that Perdue. primary, right? Yeah. Same with Beto. He comes out of that that race for the Senate in 2018, and he is the rising superstar, and he gets into that presidential race and just flops. And, and look, yeah. it happens to a lot of candidates, right? They yeah, look great sure. on paper, or they have one great cycle, and then they get onto the national scene, and it's just something of a disaster. And the thing that I've always wondered about the Beto mania is I just don't understand what the there there. And I think your point yeah. is what the there there is, is that he's just willing to say things and do things and, uh, you know, be the sort of uh, as a Gen Xer, I can say this, the sort of like slacker kind of like uh, mm. I, I'm going to I'm going to I don't care what people think about me. I'm just going to tell it like it is. But. I don't know that he's staked out a, a position that makes, you know, he said, well, what is, what is Beto's, like, what's, what's his core? Like, what does he stand right. for? What is, what is the message? I'm all for hard, honest talk and for passion and authenticity. And I'm all for profanity. I'm like one of the most profane people I've ever met. I think there's like, but if you're in Texas, it's hard. It's a harder it's, it's, it's not the problem. And look, the profanity is not the reason. No, right. Arguing, his his driving F-bombs is the problem. The problem is that there's it's not. It's reflective of a thing, but it's a reflective of a thing that makes him 
they're like that's the kind of thing that electrifies progressives and you can't win up with progressive votes alone in texas no. you're not going to win a statewide race by getting a bunch of like twitter liberals to like you they get right. you'll get well funded that way but you're not going to win that or win a statewide race there maybe in vermont you know maybe in new york maybe some in california but not not in texas and i think that that your point though amy is like the way a Democrat's going to win in Texas, there's a lot of ways to potentially pick the lock, but it's going to be someone who's got certain kinds of populist, certain kinds of progressive uh, orientations, but also has to be tied enough to an increasingly conservative Hispanic population. That's like what we're seeing with Hispanics running towards Donald Trump right now. And that state, if you can't connect with those people, and they are largely culturally conservative um, and economically, in some various cases, very liberal. Well, and you have to meet, like, meet them where they are on in Texas. Right. I mean, when you run for Senate, you can be a little more performative because the Senate, quite frankly, is pretty performative, right? You're one of yeah, yeah. 50 and okay. But when you're running for governor, you're either running on your record as an elected yes. official already, or here's my platform, here's what I'd be doing. Um, and this idea of, you know, where, where competence and um, capability become more important than ever. It's really hard to knock off an incumbent governor. Even in what would be a good year for your party, it is hard to be able to do that. So you have to be able to make it a, a, a pretty strong case there that the incumbent has, has failed. And obviously for Abbott, there are a number of factors you could go after him. One yep. on abortion, that's one line of attack. Obviously the challenge with the grid, uh, but those things haven't made as much of a dent, at least the last poll I saw in the state, and this is from a few months back, but, you know, immigration is the top issue there and for good and obvious reasons. And, you know, that's just a place where Republican and a, uh, is going to have an advantage when it comes to having a debate on people crossing uh, the border illegally. Well, and and also just to, to make the point very explicit that you made a second ago or started to make, which is, you know, you can criticize Greg Abbott for his management of the state, the power grid issues. There's a lot of things where you can yeah. criticize him, not just for being conservative, but for being incompetent. But the one thing that Better Work doesn't have right now is a perception with a lot of people that like, yeah, I'd like him to run the state. Like I have right. a great, like I have a great confidence that he would be right. a, a, a great manager and administrator, uh, right. you know, a, an economic development cheerleader for the state. I think there's a lot of undecided voters. Yeah, you need to be a different kind of, that's right. It's a very different kind of message than the one that you bring into a Senate race. Um, the stakes of these midterms, would you say high as the sky? If it, like on a scale of one to a hundred, 114, like people would like say, Hey, democracy's on the ballot this fall. You know, the fate of the, I mean, I, I there's always a lot of overclaiming. Yeah. I think it's hard for, for a, a lot of voters to believe that the fate of democracy rests on who has the speaker's gavel, right? right? And that ultimately the person in the White House is the person to which most voters turn to when they think about, you know, who's standing up for right. <laughs> the rule of law, who is who is the political leader in this country, who's sort of driving the train. Uh, that's the president of the United States. And and what happens down ballot is, is not as critical. But I think for... Um, for Democrats, the fate of a number of things is on the line with the midterm elections. One, all the judges, if, if they lose the Senate, there goes the opportunity right. for um, Democrats to uh, put more of these federal judges on the bench. And obviously, if we have another situation like a Supreme Court 
opening, right? I think we know what's going to happen there. And in the house, whether it's a five seat or a 15 seat pickup for um, Republicans, they will still be in charge. And that means they have oversight. And that yeah. means we're going to hear a lot about Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden. We're, we're going to hear a lot about uh, immigration. We're going to hear a lot of calls to impeach certain members of the cabinet. So that is going to, you know, that's the impact there. Most immediate. It's not, very, it's not very uplifting. I'll say, but I'm going to let you go, but I will. I know we agree about this. It's a weird year when it's a weird uh, year. Absolutely. But it's a weird, it's a weird year when we're going to spend a lot of time trying to t- explain to people that actually in a handful of States, the person who the most important election is not going to be at the house, not going to be for the Senate. It's not going to be for the governorship. It's going to be for the secretary of state. Yeah. Because I, I think one thing we should all right thinking people should agree on is that we don't want to uh, have a replay of 2020 in which Donald Trump, because he's installed allies of his that are election deniers at the level of key operative posts of the election machinery in these states are able to pull off in 2024 what they couldn't pull off in 2020. I can't believe any right-thinking person of either party would disagree with me about that. And that is kind of one of the things that's going to get determined in some of these places in 2022. Yeah, and it will. And I I, I think you're, you're exactly right, especially when you're talking about the the secretary of state's uh, offices, or in mm-hmm. some cases, the attorney general right. races where the abortion issue is going to be front and center. We're really going to be looking for is, <laughs> will we hear and see um, candidates refusing to concede who are um, calling for you know people to storm their state capital? Carrie Lake has been Pretty upfront as as one candidate who had, had said during the primary that you know if she loses it would only be because the election were uh, you know rigged in some way shape or form. But yeah. during most of this process, even during the general elections, even though they threatened it, the, the the candidates running on the Republican side who lost have all basically conceded. Right, we saw the New Jersey or the California special election. So. Um, uh, yes, we did. Um, and thank God for that. I mean, uh, the, the the moment we live in is too disconcerting on too many levels uh, where so much of the American democratic process is being thrown into doubt with people casting aspersions on it and and trying to jit up all these crazy conspiracy theories. But, you know, I don't love the idea of Republicans running around saying that all of our elections are fraudulent. But uh, as long as they concede on the night when they lose, I guess it's not the worst possible thing. And let's God, let's hope that trend continues because if it doesn't, man, um, we start to see at the congressional level, at the state level, what we saw at the presidential level in 2020, that is going to be a shit show. Amy Walter, thank you for being with us here on Hell and I Water. Keep your head down. Keep telling us the truth. And thank you. We'll probably talk to you again before this campaign season's over. Take care. Talk to you later. Bye. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Amy Walter and Dave Wasserman from the Cook Political Report for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Megan Burney is our producer and engineer. Zoya Suroy is our researcher. And Marshall Eisen... The one, the only, the truth, the light. He is our executive producer.